What's going on, world? Welcome to Changing the Narrative. This is a show where we discuss everything from politics, philosophy, theology, social issues, economics, and more from a biblical perspective. The main goal of this show is to find truth. What is the truth about all these matters, and how should we respond once we have a greater understanding of the issues? Let's discuss. Welcome back, people. Just wanted to give you a heads up before I got the interview started. Um, I interviewed Mr. I'm sorry, G. Edward Griffin, who is an author, historian, filmmaker. He's been making material since the 60s. Um, anyway, during the interview, my voice echoed. So I had to go in and edit my voice a little bit to remove the echoes. And for the most part, I, I got all the echoes out. But, you know, there's some portions I left in there where you might hear a slight echo. Um, so just keep that in mind you'll you'll probably hear the different variations but um anyway at first we talked about the federal reserve um for those that don't know the federal reserve is a central bank that issues the money of america they create the money and lend it to the government and uh we talked about that book um keep in mind that the federal reserve is not really a constitutional um well it's not in the constitution that you know we should have a central bank um and the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, talks about how uh, it's a private cartel. It's not even federal. Um, and so, you know, in this book, he goes into detail about how these men got together, started this system. And uh, it's one of the greatest financial crimes or greatest crimes ever um, committed in American history. Um, but anyway, I hope you guys enjoy the conversation. And on that note, let's get started. What's going on, people? Welcome to Changing the Narrative. Today, we have special guest, G. Edward Griffin. He is an author, historian, and filmmaker. He's written the books, The Creature from Jekyll Island, which talks about the Federal Reserve System, A World Without Cancer, The Fearful Master, and also The Capitalist Conspiracy, amongst many others. Welcome to the show, Mr. Griffin. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. No problem. Well, let me start with this. When I was 21 years old, I went to this investment conference and I met this lady and she gave me this CD and it, she said, listen to it. It'll teach you about the money or the monetary system in this country and how money works. And so I took it home, listened to it. And it was about how money is created in this country and how the Federal Reserve System works. And also it went into the history of it. And I was blown away. I was so fascinated with uh, how these men came up with this system. So basically it was a, um, a monetary system, a Federal Reserve Bank that they started where they created money out of thin air and they lent it to the government and charge interest on it. So, you know, I, I just, I, I was blown away. I was so fascinated with all the deception and the fraud that these men engaged in. And um, eventually I gave it to my grandparents. I think this was around the 2008 crash. And one day they called me and they said, man, this guy predicted all of this. And so, um, you know, I had been listening to that CD for like a year straight, just religiously, um, just learning about how the system worked. And also it led me down a rabbit hole of information. I found out about the John Birch Society and uh, other types of information. But uh, I just want to commend you on that. Well, you're you're very welcome. And you can't you can't understand how how thrilled I am to hear you say that, because that was that was the payoff for writing that book. When I got into it, I didn't think anybody would be interested, you know, 
I mean, a big, thick book, 600 pages on banking? <laughs> you got to be out of your mind. Who wants to read a book like that? Uh, which is one of the reasons I called it The Creature from Jekyll Island, because I was trying to make it clear that... <laughs> Hey everybody! This is not uh, this is not a textbook. This is not this is not a theory about money and banking and discount ratios and and rules and regulations. This is a, a who done it? Because right. I when I got into the research, of course, I was totally green. I didn't have any idea what I was getting into, but I thought I was going to be into a very technical topic. Which of course it does get technical if you want it to be. But what I discovered was a crime. Uh, the crime of the ages, how you could legalize plunder, how you could convince people to be happy with the idea that they're being plundered every day by unseen forces, how it, how it could be that the governments could be taken over by uh, private banking, monetary interests, investment interests, and the people wouldn't even know it. In fact, even most of the members of the government didn't know it. All they knew is that there were certain powerful forces out there that could get them elected or unelected. And so they kind of towed the line when it came to dealing with those forces. They had no curiosity to find out, well, who, who were these people and how did they get this power and all that sort of thing. So I wrote the book, as you know, more as a mystery, a murder mystery or a, mm -hmm. a crime novel to find out, you know, who, who done it, who did it and how they did it and where they buried the body and everything that, that sort of thing. So right. blow me down, I was really delightfully surprised when I found out that there were hundreds of thousands of people just like you that got hooked on the on the reality. I mean, you talk about a reality show. This is the real yeah. reality show. It's not Absolutely. faked. It's not filmed. And oh, take two. Let's do that over again, sort of thing. This is the real thing in real time. And of course, now it's playing out very vividly on our mental screens as we see the whole economic system being morphed into something that's never been seen in the world before and will probably turn out to be even more horrible and a bigger crime than anything we've seen in the past. So it's it's very much a part of our lives, even though most people yet don't quite realize it. Well, when I came across this book, I was like so intrigued and I was a guy that didn't read too often in high school or I guess I wasn't like an avid reader. But when I came across this book, I mean, I was so intrigued and drawn in and I would recommend it for anybody, even if you don't like to read, like this is the type of book that will pull you in because it reads like a, a mystery novel. A book for really non-readers. I like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, it's one of those books that pulls you in. It's very captivating and it reads like a novel, like I said, um, but it's based on actual history. Uh, what would you say was your awakening moment? I wish I could uh, tell you something very dramatic, but there was no such event. Yeah, I don't recall it, at least. It was not so dramatic that I recognized it. I started off at the very beginning, kind of a crusader. I knew that the world needed, uh, needed a lot of attention. It was going down the tubes and I quit my job and the corporate world and decided to become crusader rabbit so to speak my poor wife almost had a fit when she realized all of a sudden i didn't have that paycheck because i walked away from a, a good job with a large company just so i could save the world you know and get the truth out there but uh, when i started this project i had no idea of the depth of it and so i just thought well, I, would, I would do a little inexpensive documentary film 
on inflation. What is the cause of inflation? How does it come about? How does it work? Who benefits? Uh, who gets hurt? Is there a way to avoid it? You know, things like that. Kind of a surface look at inflation. The kind of thing you might expect to see if you saw an article on that topic in a magazine, on the newsstand. Oh, that's interesting. I'll, I'll spend 10, 15, 20 minutes on it, and that'll be the end of that. So that's how I started out. But boy, once I... Once I stepped into that rabbit hole and started to fall deeper and deeper and deeper into it, I realized all of the things that you said in your introduction were tied in to the banking system. Because money is, of course, the, I guess you could call it the, the blood supply that flows through the, the veins of, of the economic system, the political system, the social system. Everything runs on money at some point. Money has to exchange hands to get people to do things for most, in most cases. If you want to paint your house, you might call for volunteers, but you're probably going to get it painted a lot faster and better if you hire someone to paint your house. So the same thing is true of most things in life. So money is, you know, in, in the middle of every human interaction there is. And if, if there is a, let's just say, a theoretical group, let's just suppose that there is a group of people, not terribly large at the top of the pyramid of power, maybe controlled by a dozen people or less, a group that actually control the creation of money in the mm -hmm. world. They actually have that kind of power through institutions such as the Federal Reserve System or the Bank of England or, the, you know, the Bank of France and, and all these central banks around the world are modeled after the Bank of England, as I found out, including the Federal Reserve. And if you realize that all these these groups, these banks, uh, the heads of these institutions know each other intimately and they meet regularly in Basel, Switzerland and in places like the Bilderberger Group. And, and all of a sudden you're, you've got a peak inside a room that you didn't know existed. And it looks like it's a secret society in there. I mean, these people don't want you prying in there. They're doing things that they don't want you to know about. And so you have to be kind of a, a busybody, a, a researcher, even a writer of books <laughs> goes digging into the history of these things to see what's going on in those rooms. And right. when you get a good look at it, you realize, oh my gosh, the world is not run the way I thought it was. I thought everybody was mm -hmm. out there in the open, that all the politicians were there because they wanted to serve their country. I thought that the judges were all honest. I thought the doctors were all, you know, interested only in curing diseases, even though it, if the pharmaceutical company were to come up with some miracle drugs that would cure diseases, they would put themselves out of business. So mm -hmm. they're not going to do that. I hadn't even thought about that possibility. Anyway, the point I'm yeah. rambling toward is that once you start to learn about these things and you dig a little deeper than the surface and you find out that there really is a rabbit hole, it's very real, and you right. discover things that were just beyond your imagination. So that was the, the kind of the awe and the wonder and the shock and mm -hmm. eventually disgust and then anger that went through yeah. me as I discovered the way the real world works. Yeah. And that's why I wrote 
things like, uh, you know, the, the creature from Jekyll Island. But now just back to your point, I just started out to do a documentary film on inflation. But once mm-hmm. you once you start down that hole, you can't stop there. You've got to yeah. you got to check the whole thing out. Right. One of the questions I've always had was who owns the Fed? I've always been seeking clarification. I heard that it's owned by member banks. But can you explain that a little Well, we could make this a really uh, deep and long topic if we wanted to by saying, let's start by defining what the word ownership means. Uh, You know, you say you own your home, but do you really? Because if you don't pay your taxes, who takes it away from you? And you yeah. say, oh, my gosh, that's right. I guess I guess the government really owned it. I, I was allowed to call myself the owner as long as I paid them the rent for it. So right. do you really own your house if you don't control it under all circumstances? Ownership usually implies your legal right to monopolize whatever it is you say you own, the asset that you own. You have access to it, unconditional access and unconditional use, so long as you don't use it to injure uh, other people. Mm -hmm. So if that's the definition of ownership, then you ask who owns the Fed? And the answer is that, well, nobody really owns it because it's a, have to understand it's a cartel. The Fed is a, is like a labor union. Who owns the labor union? Well, actually, there are a few people that control it at the top. And you could say, well, they control it, so they own it. And the same thing is true with the Federal Reserve and all the central banks around the world. There are a lot of people who may hold little pieces of paper that say they're certificates of ownership or stock, stock certificates like in a, any other corporation. But with normal corporations, a certificate of stock is something that you can sell if you want to. Well, if you own a certificate of stock in the Federal Reserve System because you are a member bank, you cannot sell it. If you can't sell something, you don't really own it. You don't have total control over it. Also, those little pieces of paper that say you are a owner of the Federal Reserve, and they don't give you the right to vote as to who's going to be the head of it. They don't give you the right to select your leadership. So there are a lot of things you can't do with that piece of paper. If you really own mm-hmm. the Federal Reserve, you could do all those things. Right. So to cut to the chase, the real answer to your question is that the Federal Reserve System is owned in the sense of controlled. Mm-hmm. It is owned by the very largest banks in the system and the most well-known and most powerful personalities who, by the sheer weight of their contacts and their uh, their alliances with other bankers and politicians. It's it's who they are and who they know and the phone calls they can make, that kind of thing, the deals they can swing. Those are the real owners of the Federal Reserve. And who are they? I don't really know. And when you come down to it with name tags, but when you go back far enough away from the picture so that you can see the whole picture, you back way away and you see all the parameters around it, you realize that the the center of the whole banking system in the world is circle, circles around its sort of orbits around the Rockefeller banking interests 
Mm-hmm. And um, uh, well, let's just say in, in the United States, it's Rockefeller. But in, in Europe, of course, it's Rothschild. So I would say that if you really wanted to have a name on someone or some family dynasty that has the most influence over the banking systems of the world, and, to, and by that influence brings control, and control is the essence of ownership, then mm-hmm. I would say it's Rockefeller and Rothschild. Hmm. Now, when it comes to common stock, you said the average citizen can't have common stock in the Federal Reserve, correct? No. Okay. And earlier you said that you can't sell this stock. Not even the banks can sell the stock. Is that correct? That's right. It's a, it's a classified class of stock. It doesn't, no, you can't sell it. It's, it's issued only to member banks. Wow. Mm-hmm. And how can, in other words, it's not the same as, as, as a corporation that is owned by investors. It's a different animal. Yeah. Now, how do you think normal people will be able to operate outside of the Federal Reserve System with like gold or silver or alternative forms of currency? And do you think we're reaching a point where we won't be able to operate outside of this Federal Reserve System? Well, that is the goal for these people that that control the Fed and their sister organizations around the world, the international banking cartel. Maybe later should come back to that word cartel and talk more about it because that's what it is. We're dealing with a cartel and it's not a bank or a government agency. It's a private cartel of banks. But... Um, the plan of the, the directors of this cartel is to have the whole world without options to go anywhere else for monetary exchange except through their system. And they have been tightening the noose on that ever since the Fed was created in 1910. I mean, at first the Fed was just, well, there it was. I mean, you didn't have to use Federal Reserve notes if you didn't want to because there were plenty of bank notes out there. You know, the banks were issuing their own currency prior to that. Just about every major bank in the world had its bank notes and they were circulated side by side with each other. Some of them were discounted substantially if they were unknown banks. But the large reputable banks of the world, their their bank notes were gladly accepted because of the reputation and the tradition of those banks. So people were using non-government money throughout all of history. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, government money was, was as soon as government got the idea that they could use uh, legal tender laws to force people to use their money and not the private money and, you know, and, and start using the power of the police state to punish you if you didn't or if you created an independent money, which might be very good money, but they would call it counterfeit because it wasn't government money. And so from the very beginning, the, the battle was on to gradually eliminate all forms of alternate currencies. And that, that noose has been tightened gradually every year, ever since 1910. And now, of course, with the arrival of digital currencies and cryptocurrencies and all the governments and the banks are working feverishly to implement that system, contrary to the propaganda out there about how it's going to put an end to 
in uh, government control and, and how the banks are going to be replaced by, you know, blockchain technology and all of the propaganda that's out there to make us think, oh, this is something we should really we should really want. Contrary to that, the banks and the um, governments are working feverishly around the clock to develop their uh, international network of cryptocurrencies because mm. then current uh, cash in your pocket will be it will disappear because it's practically gone now because people are voluntarily using credit cards and uh, right. checks and so forth. But behind all of that, you've always got the option to go to the bank and say, I want uh, I want a bunch of $100 bills or something like that. And you can go out and buy dinner with cash. As long as people can do that, they have a certain amount of privacy, a certain amount of freedom of action. But once that all disappears, and the only way that you can buy or sell something is to use the establishment's crypto monetary system and you have no control. You can't withdraw it. Uh, you know, you can move it from one place to another, but you can't get it out into your hands. So if you're not a good boy and girl and you do something they don't like, all they got to do mm -hmm. is to say, hmm, we think this is a dangerous person now. They're endangering, they're endangering right. lives. You're a terrorist. Maybe, maybe they're terrorists or something, you know, or they're crooks. Maybe they didn't pay their taxes. So they'll throw the switch and all of a sudden your currency stops. This is where it's headed. Mm. And it's moving very close to that point right now. Uh, I used to think that, well, this might happen and maybe another, oh, another... 30 or 40 or 50 years. And now these people are talking about the next um, 10 years. Yeah, I feel like uh, we're rapidly approaching that point and um, it's right at our doorsteps. Um, would you say that we live in a monetary dictatorship, so to speak? Um, I mean, we do have some alternative currencies we can use like gold or silver, but for the most part, we operate on the uh, dollar or the Federal Reserve note. Yes, I think your word is well chosen because the dictatorship could always use an adjective to narrow the definition. What kind of a dictatorship is it? I mean, there are military dictatorships, there are economic dictatorships, uh, there are religious dictatorships. Um, I, I think you could put almost any word, tie it to the word dictatorship and you'd have something to think about. Uh, you, you might even argue that today we have an information dictatorship because these people control the channels of communication and the information that the average person gets uh, is so twisted and filtered that it's impossible for most people to come to an intelligent conclusion or understanding or have an opinion, really, because it's all based on partial or false information. And that is really the basis of a dictatorship, because the mind is is the strongest um, weapon a man has in his self-defense. And if you can subvert his mind and convince him that black is white and that good is bad and vice versa, uh, and, and enlist him on the forces of evil, and he'll be thinking he's doing good, like all these poor people running around wearing masks today, you know, they really think they're helping. They think they're helping to protect uh, the lives of people. They're, they're, mm -hmm. they're good people, but they don't know that the information they've been given is so twisted and filtered and false that they're actually they're killing people. So mm -hmm. if you can control the minds of people through information, I would say this is an information dictatorship that we're living in today. 
Yeah. Well, what countries would you say don't have a central bank or a system like the Federal Reserve that controls them? Or are there any? I can't think of any. I think there I think I read it one one place. <laughs> I didn't I'd have to go and look up the name of the country even. Um, but they let's just say there are none. Effectively, there are none. All the banks of the world are effectively now are part of this international system. All the big banks, if there are a few little banks like a mon pa bank down in, in Hoboken someplace or, or Timbuktu, I don't know, they may exist. I hope they do. If they do, I'd probably go and try and make a deposit in one of them, but nobody would recognize or honor their checks. So I don't know whether that would be of any value. But I'm going to give you the simple and probably the logical, correct answer is that they all are that way. They're all based on fractional reserve banking. They all work on the same principle that money can be created, not so much out of nothing, although that is true, but it's even worse than out of nothing. They create money out of debt. In the world today, money comes into existence only when somebody wants to borrow it. If all the debt that people have, personal and government and institutional debt, if all the debt were paid back today, one second after that moment, there would be no money in the world because it would all be extinguished. That's that's kind of an interesting and wow. sad circumstance when you think about it because it means that debt can never be erased or nobody would dare try it because it would ruin everything, wouldn't it? Wow. <laughs> so it's, we've got t- twisted into that kind of an absurd situation. So all the all the banks have to play that game in order to, to swim in the pool. And that's what you have to, that's what you, you use the breaststroke to swim in this pool. And the breaststroke in this case is, is debt-based money. They're all that yeah. way. Wow, that's disappointing. Has there ever been anyone like a Rockefeller or Rothschild uh, or someone with that amount of wealth or influence that has been willing to abolish the Fed or overturn the system or maybe use their their wealth and their influence for something good? Is there anyone like that? With that type of I'm, uh, I'm trying to think of anybody other than maybe um, a monk somewhere in a monastery uh, <laughs> who might be that self-sacrificing that they would give up um, the greatest treasure that's ever been held in the world in order to help the common man. I mean, you and I think we would do that. Um, maybe we would, maybe we wouldn't if we had that much wealth and power and we'd become used to it. We're born into it and that kind of thing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't think I don't think it's possible because of human nature being what it is, which is one of the reasons I like the free enterprise system, because if you assume that that merit and, and, and uh, ethics and morality on the part of human beings is going to be the thing that drives a system, which we would like to believe, um, you're going to be disappointed because there's always somebody that doesn't have the morality and the, and the good instincts that you and I have or we think we have. And so they're going to be corrupted by the temptation of money and power. And the system is always going to go toward the corruption, toward corruption. Um, so you need a warrior class to to combat that. And now you come back to a philosophical issue. In, in my mind, it's a philosophical uh, issue that's been around since the beginning of time. And that is the, the eternal conflict that is expressed in the concept of the yin and the yang. 
you know, the good and the bad. It seems like like a natural law of the universe is that for every force, there is an equal and opposite force. Mm. For every, you know, to hold us to the planet, there's a gravity that or either pushes or pulls us, depending on how you define that, to the planet. But then the planet is pushing back when we hit this hard surface. And so there's a there's a meeting of the opposite forces. And here we are as we think life exists only because we have equal and opposite forces holding us in place for every up. There's a down. For every left, there's a right. For every in, there's an out. For every good, there's a bad. So, for every evil, there's a good. So, how can you design a system where you can say, everybody, everybody, everything is going to be good without evil? It's not going to happen. So, the reason I like the free enterprise system, and I come back to that, is because it recognizes, perhaps unintentionally, but it recognizes intrinsically in terms of the way it functions, it's the natural law that everybody pursuing their self interest will counter each other's evil instincts and they'll defend themselves and help others. Charity and all of this gets in and it's distributed over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of people, each competing with each other for their self-interest. And they, the forces of good and evil up and down, buy and sell, yes and no, uh, all the issues that we hoped some wise man or committee would solve are solved automatically because of the, the natural forces out there in nature, the, the competition of human beings against each other. And the ultimate form of enlightened self-interest is that you don't go around killing people. Because if you do that, you're going to live in a system where somebody's going to kill you. You don't go around stealing things because if you do, somebody's going to steal from you. You begin after your age five or six or whatever it is, you begin to realize that that it that crime really doesn't pay. It, it maybe pays for a while. Of course, it pays. Otherwise, there'd be no criminals. But it, you, you learn that it's for your own benefit to be honest. And you learn that that's the kind of a world you want to live in where, where you don't have to worry too much about crooks and thieves. And that's why you have police forces and so forth. But right. if you're a socialist or a communist or a Nazi or a Fatsi, only the collectivist, you come up with these ideas. We're going to change mankind. We're going to eliminate the, comp- the competition instinct. We're going to make everybody be friendly and loving and help each other and so forth. And it's going to be a wonderful utopia. And then the state will wither away, said Karl Marx. Well, that never happens. The state just gets wickeder and wickeder. The forces of evil get stronger and stronger because of all that power and money that goes into the hands of the of the Communist Party or the Fascist Party or in your country, the Republican Party or the Democrat Party. The people get this power and this wealth in institutions and in media institutions, corporations. Once you get this concentration of money and power, it's like a magnet and it, it attracts the predator class. Mm-hmm. And so there you have it. You, you just, if you think you're going to build a system on changing the instincts of mankind, you've made a terrible mistake in my view. So yeah. this is a long-winded answer to your question. Right. Will this ever change? I think it will, but not until we allow the free market 
to be the decider, to be the ultimate force of, of making decisions of what we should do. Let the people at large make those decisions and not rely on a president or a committee or a Congress or a board of directors or some group of wise men, because those are the very people who will be corrupted by that power. Yeah. Well, yeah, I do believe crime doesn't pay, but um, well, I guess that depends. If you're a Rothschild, then it does pay. It pays. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's one of those things. Of course it pays. Otherwise there wouldn't be so many criminals. Right. Now, let me ask you this. Um, something I've always been interested in was the income tax. From my understanding, the income tax was set up during the same year as the Federal Reserve, and it was put in place to pay off the interest on the debt that the Federal Reserve created for the government. And I'm not sure if I have all that correct, but how was the income tax or how does the income tax relate to the Federal Reserve? There are a lot of views on that. And my view is, is pretty simple. Maybe it's oversimplified. But uh, I've forgotten the name of the fellow who was a member of the Federal Reserve Board of one of the Federal Reserve banks, so-called, one of the divisions. And he wrote a paper. Gosh, I wish I could remember his name. It's in my book, by the way. <laughs> anyway, uh, he wrote a paper shortly after World War II when he talked about the purpose of the uh, income tax. And he was one of the originators, by the way, of the uh, withholding tax system. He was one of the people that dreamed that up and helped institute the government withholding of taxes from your paycheck. And he, he wrote a paper, I guess it was based on a presentation he made before some banking uh, organization. And here's what he said, in essence. He said, now that the Federal Reserve is in existence and we can create money, literally out of nothing, as much as we want, and the people will accept it, of course, because they have to. There's a, there's a law in the books that they have to do it. As long as we can do that, then taxation no longer has the purpose of raising revenue. That's kind of an interesting thought. Mm. Well, and he said, so the real purpose of taxation today is to accomplish social and political objectives, to redistribute wealth from our enemies and giving it to our friends, to support those projects which we think are going to be socially beneficial, to make changes in the natural flow, the ebb, uh, you know, and the flow of the tides in the free market, because sometimes those can be very disruptive, he said, and we don't approve of them. We want to make this the system more to our liking. In other words, he's speaking as a social and political engineer. So he said the purpose of taxation today is to engineer society. And there you have it. That's its only purpose, is to engineer society. It's not to raise revenue because they don't need it anymore. They can just raise it through inflation. That's right. what started me down this path. In fact, we're going to see a lot of that. They're printing or not printing, but they're creating money now at a rate never before imagined, even imagined. Mm -hmm. And when you think about it, there's no way that they can think that that'll ever be repaid or that the system can go back to normal, as they like to call it again. Mm -hmm. Why are they doing this? It's because they're just going for broke and they, they're, they're saying the system is going down. And you know, as it goes down, we want to buy up all of the assets. The people are losing their homes, right? Because they can't pay for them. So we'll buy them up. We'll create the money. Now the government will own all the homes, all the factories that went bankrupt, and the people will be starving. So we'll send them money. Now we own the people. 
as long as they mm-hmm. depend on us for their weekly or monthly check. And we will own all the automob- automobiles. We will own all the hotels, all the airlines. We will own everything. And so it's no longer an economic system for exchange between free people. It's a system of of enslavement. Right. Maybe I should get a job with the government. No, I'm Lots kidding, and lots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot there- of people think that way, by the way. And, of course, they become crushed in the system. Yeah. They, I've, I've talked to some of them. In fact, the first ones I talked to years and years ago were the ones who defected from the Soviet Union. Uh, I had a chance to interview quite a few of those chaps. And one of them was a high-ranking KGB officer who escaped from Russia at great risk to his life. His name was Yuri Bezmenov. And he was high-ranking KGB. And they would have killed him if they could have caught him. And uh, he came from a privileged family and everything. But he was in the system, you know, working for the government. And he said he couldn't take it anymore. It was just so cruel and unfair. And he just wanted out. And as long as there was a place to go, like the United States, which he was, prior to his escape, he was telling everybody how evil the United States was, you know. And all the while, he could hardly wait to get here. And so out he came. So I talked to people like that. And and they, they hated their lives, even though they lived well working for the government. They couldn't take it. Yeah. Now, I've heard that countries like North Korea, Cuba and Iran uh, don't have central banks or uh, are more independent in terms of their economy. Like they don't have as much control over their economic system. Is that true? I'd have to think about that. I guess the honest answer is I'm not I'm not sure whether it's true or not. I do know that if they don't have a banking system, that's an exact parallel of our ours, meaning a central bank. They've got some something very close to it. Now, the difference between a a central bank, which is run by a private cartel, like it is in the United States, you know, those are private banks. Now, in some countries, and maybe even in our country, the the time may be coming when there'd be no difference between owners of the banks and owners of the government or operators of the government. It's all welded together. That may change form subtly, but the essence of it will not change. And that is that it's, it's not a free enterprise. It's not a free market enterprise. It's a market for issuing and controlling the flow of money as a means of controlling people. And it may change the rules a little bit and the structures. Maybe it'll be, maybe it won't be through the banks. But, you know, as it is already, let's face it, there's little difference between the banks and the government. People from the highest levels of government in the economics, for example, the Secretary of the Treasury, take a look at who they are. The, the secretaries of treasury always come from the banking world, don't they? And of course, when they're through with the banking world, they go back into the government again. It's a it's a rotating door, a revolving door. Government and and uh, powerful corporations are becoming one now. We've come to the point where I think it's technically correct to say that we don't have to worry about the government taking over the banks because the banks have already taken over the government. Right. Yeah. 
Now, also in your book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, you talked about JFK and this executive order that he signed. Um, and a lot of people have the misconception that he was trying to shut down the Fed or he signed this executive order to shut down the Fed. Um, can you go into detail about that executive order? Yes. I wish I had all the details in front of me. I haven't looked at them for quite a while, but the broad outline is very, very clear. Uh, first of all, my own research on that topic topic uh, led me to an entirely different conclusion. Uh, let's just start with the, the executive order itself. It was signed by JFK, there's no doubt about it, but that um, executive order, I looked it up, I, I, I saw its uh, pedigree. It was part of a whole string of executive orders on that topic that had gone on for decades. It goes all the way back to the Civil War when greenbacks were issued. And there was some law passed long before I was born about how we keep those greenbacks in circulation and, uh, and, and make sure that, you know, they're recognized by the government. It was always to be official money, which I thought was strange, but I, can, I found out that's actually what happened. Congress said, yeah, we've got to keep so many of these in circulation. These are treasury notes or something. It's a small number compared to what's in circulation. But anyway, it was every once in a while, the president would have to authorize the Treasury to replace some of those notes that either disappeared or were destroyed or something like that. It was one of those little weird things about the monetary history that this should happen. But it happened. And so uh, I got the picture that people were just, you know, oh, yeah, Mr. President, here, here are 50 documents you got to sign this morning. We've checked them over. Just sign them. And he, I'm sure he didn't even read the darn thing. And so, but we, you can read it and you realize that all it did was transfer the authority, didn't do anything except transfer the authority to do something from the president to the secretary of the treasury so that it could get it off of the president's desk, you know, instead of all those signatures every morning that he has to go through because he's the chief executive officer, let the treasury make these, obey the, those laws and so forth. It was, it was what they call a book or a housekeeping uh, type of uh, executive order. And I read it very cautiously and I didn't believe it. Everything I challenged it and I said, yep, I guess I think that's what it was. All right. That's just the beginning of it. First of all, um, the whole thing goes back. To, that story came out with a quotation from JFK that was attributed to a speech he made at Columbia University in which he said, I must warn my fellow Americans or something like that mm -hmm. about this great this great problem that we have. And we must we must do something very substantial because the nation is in great danger if we do not act quickly. It was something like that. It was a very serious but very vague statement. It, we didn't really know what it was what he was talking about. And but, but since it was accompanying the information about the executive order, the implication was, well, he must have been talking about the executive order and the monetary system. And uh, so I thought, that's interesting. I'd like to hear the rest of his speech. So I called Columbia University and I got hold of their their um, librarian or their curator or whatever, whoever keeps track of those things. And I said, is it possible for me to get a copy of President Kennedy's speech that was delivered at the university on such and such a date? 
And the very nice lady there said, well, I'll check into it. I'll get back to you. So she called me back a few days later. She said, well, we've checked it out. And no, we don't have anything like that. She said, but we also found something interesting. And that is that President Kennedy did not speak at Columbia University on that date or any other date. He has never spoken at Columbia University. I said, really? Wow, well, that's interesting. So I called the White House and I got hold of the, the I guess it was an office of secretary. They called it the secretary of the president, but it's probably a whole staff of people. And I said, can you tell me from the president's calendar where he was on this particular date? All right. She said, yeah, I'll get back to you. Well, I, she got back to me and President Kennedy was in the White House on that date and he was receiving ambassadors that particular day. He was not at University of Columbia. So I'll start off with the, the opening line that aroused everybody's interest on this proved to be apparently, as far as I could tell, was not true. So then I, you know, I went further. I just started checking and, and questioning all the way down the line. And the fact of the matter is that what this really did was inconsequential. And President Kennedy was always a friend of the Federal Reserve System. Now, this may, mm -hmm. people aren't going to want to hear this because they love President Kennedy. He's a martyr. He was shot. He was killed. And he gave great speeches. And he was, he was against communism. There's no question about that. And uh, we love President Kennedy. But the fact of the matter is, Kennedy was a graduate of the London School of Economics, which was sponsored by the Fabian Socialist Society. Mm -hmm. uh, Kennedy is, was an internationalist in every sense of the word. He was all for internationalism and absorbing the United States into a one world government. And he said so on numerous occasions. I put uh, one of my earliest books, in fact, my first book was called The Creature from, uh, I mean, not The Creature, but um, The Fearful Master, A Second Look at the United Nations. And that was way back in the 1960s. I did the research on that. And I was shocked to find all these statements from President Kennedy about, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll tell you right now, he said, uh, we must do everything we can to redistribute the wealth of the world because America is too wealthy. We have to get rid of, we have to bring America down so it doesn't rise so much above the rest of the world that it couldn't be comfortably merged into a world system. And this was President Kennedy. Remember, he went from to the Fabian School of, of economics, right. run by the Fabian Society. He was always an internationalist. He was always for international money. He was everything. And there was no reason for them to get rid of Kennedy for that reason, I should say. Now, they certainly hated right. Kennedy for other reasons, which right. is not the topic of this. I'll make it short and just say after I went through all of these things, I came to the conclusion that was a myth. It was a right. pleasant myth because we wanted to believe. I wanted, everybody wants to say, yeah, see, we knew those dirty dogs were, were capable of doing that, and they are. They're capable of doing anything like that. But in this case, I, I think the idea of of the um, the executive order and threatening to close down the Federal Reserve System is, in, to my knowledge, it cannot be supported in any way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was surprised to read about that in your book because I hadn't been hearing that for a while. Now, shifting gears a little bit because I can talk about the federal day, but um, you wrote a book called A World Without Cancer. And uh, there was a section that intrigued me, and that was the uh, Rockefeller's influence on our healthcare industry. How much influence did the Rockefeller family have on our healthcare industry? 
how much influence? I would say excessive well, how influence. Did they excessive, whatever that means. It's, it's in other words, way, way too much. I won't say it's total, but I, I wouldn't try to put a percentage on it. But it's certainly dominant. It's probably the most powerful influence of any other single source. Let's put it that way. And of course, it's not hard to see why they, they put money into it. The Rockefellers have always been heavily invested in uh, the pharmaceutical industry. And they recommended that others invest in it, too. And so, you know, they made no bones about it. I did find at one time it was hard to find out how they were invested in it because they worked through street names. They, you know, they buy up companies and then have companies and investment firms and funds invest in the pharmaceutical industry. And you don't know who the ultimate uh, source of the money really is. But people have checked that out. And the, the main thing is the Rockefellers themselves kind of boast about their uh, their uh, influence in that industry and their interest in it. Um, they are the ones that funded uh, so much. Uh, well, they totally funded the um, all of the educational institutions in the medical field that existed, all but one. Uh, this goes back to the Flexner Report of 1910, I believe it was, the same right. same year that the Federal Reserve was uh, undergoing development. Uh, the Flexner Report, written by uh, Dr. Abraham or Simon, I've forgotten which one. Their two brothers were involved, but anyway, they were both doctors. And uh, he wrote the report funded by the Rockefellers, which was used as the basis for um, reform, as they called it, reform of medical science in America, reform of medicine. There were a lot of quacks out there in those days who could get a medical degree by mail. Uh, today, you can't get a medical degree by mail. Um, you have to go through quite a, a rigid training program, and a lot of them come out as quacks, <laughs> right. regardless of how much money was spent. Um, whereas back in the old days, there certainly were a lot of quacks who were pretending medical knowledge, but a lot of them, even though they didn't have medical degrees, had pretty good medical knowledge from their grandmothers, you know? There was a tradition in every, in every society. There's a tradition of medicine that comes down from the past, much of it very, very effective. And I might add, I've learned lately that some of it is more effective, I believe, than even our most modern techniques of, of uh, treating right. diseases. But that's a side story. So th the point is that having written the Flexner Report, which demonstrated the terrible condition of um, medical education in America, then the Rockefeller started offering tremendous amounts of money as grants to the teaching institutions, medical institutions around the country who would accept the money and accept with the money control over the curricula. And of course, that's easy to do. If, if, you're, a if you're the president of some struggling little uh, medical school in the Midwest mm -hmm. or any place, and you're just barely making it, uh, and somebody says, you know, we like what you're doing here, and we will give you a $20 million grant, would you like that? Uh, did you say 20? Well, yeah, I, I would like that very much. Thank you. Uh, we only have one little requirement. Uh, hope you would agree to it. Well, what is that, sir? Well, the requirement is that since it is a substantial amount of money, um, we'd like to have a member or possibly two members on your board of directors just to see that our money is being wisely spent. Would that be acceptable, expect, expect, acceptable to you, sir? And the answer, yeah. oh, yeah, I think so. Uh, and of course, the names they would put up would be like Dr. Flexner. 
who had a very fine reputation or someone else who was really respected in the community, but a Rockefeller man nevertheless. So in this process, believe it or not, in a, a number of years, I think it was less than eight years or in that range, the Rockefeller funding a great great financial injection into the educational system was able to take over virtually all of all the medical teaching institutions in America and they've owned it ever since even today wow. the greatest portion of the funding for these institute trainings the you know the universities the training where they teach the doctors and the nurses it comes mm. from these foundations or, or from the uh, pharmaceutical industry which is another extension of the same people so this is how the whole medical uh, organization around the world by the way and not just an american phenomenon were taken mm. over by funding of people who were heavily invested in the pharmaceutical industry and it's no wonder that your doctor and my doctor and all these good people have trained and trained boy do they know their chemistry but they don't know beans about nutrition their wives know right. more about basic nutrition than they do because right. they were trained to do that so mm. the end result is yeah i don't care what you go to your doctor for today i don't care if it's a hangnail or a cancer or a brain tumor headache coronavirus or whatever it is you know <laughs> cough whatever it is they're going to recommend uh, some kind of an expensive medication that comes out of the pharmaceutical industry and if you're going to suggest uh, something that is cheap you know like mm. vitamin d uh, are you okay? Oh, you know, that doesn't work. Well, that's quackery. You know, it's got to got to cost $5,000 to start with a week or something like that. And that's how it happens. So and, and this is not just my opinion. I wrote about it in the book. But anybody that has read it would understand that I, my references were first first form references, original documents from the people themselves who are doing this and explaining why they were doing it. So it's not it's not editorial opinion at all. All right. So before that, we use traditional forms of medicine or more natural ways of healing people, like you said earlier. And the Rockefellers came around, invested money and bought people off and changed the way things were done and created an industry out of it. Is that safe to say? That's exactly. Yeah, that's a much better and shorter summary than all my long winded approach to it. But that is really exactly what happened. And in wow. uh, in I remember uh, seeing a video of a a young lady. Um, this was a few years ago who used to be a top sales rep for one of the large pharmaceutical companies. She was the gal or one of the many that goes around visiting doctors and giving them samples of the latest and greatest drugs that their company has just uh, produced and giving them the literature and telling them how good it is and so forth. And, and she said she quit her job. And she was rising in the in the organization, but she quit. She walked away from it because she couldn't take it anymore. And in this speech, she explained why. She said, I, I finally discovered that I was working for a company with that, which had an immoral business model. And then she explained what the business model was. She said, in the pharmaceutical industry, you cannot ever, ever come up with a drug that's going to cure a disease. If you did, you'd put yourself out of business. How stupid that would be. The goal of the pharmaceutical companies is not to cure anything, but to prolong it and to control it and to keep you on their meds 
every day, every week for the rest of your life. That way the cash keeps coming in, keeps coming in. And the drugs are sometimes, she said, designed in such a way that they create side effects, that now you need more drugs to control the side effects of the first drug. And you will need those every day for the rest of your life. And she said, when I realized that the pharmaceutical industry was an industry that promoted and ensured sickness and death instead of health and curative procedures, she said, I decided I couldn't work for it anymore. And I got to thinking about it. Yep, these people at the top are not necessarily criminals. They don't think of themselves that way. It's a business model. It's, mm-hmm. you know, you're in there to make money, right? So you don't produce anything that's going to cause you not to make money. You produce the things that produce money for you. And that's mm-hmm. what we're dealing with. Even if it causes death. <laughs> Even if it causes death. Mm-hmm. Wow, that, that's unbelievable. Um, you, you talked about. Uh, Latrell in your book as well, which was uh, curing people of cancer. I mean, in your experience, or I should say, have you had experience in dealing with doctors that were healing people of cancer? Oh, absolutely. That's what got me into it. And yes, I had no inkling that there was such such a business model in the uh, in the cancer industry that uh, they didn't want to cure cancer. They just wanted to treat it. And but I what got me into it is because a very close friend of mine back in the day was a doctor, an MD, Dr. John Richardson, who was uh, practicing medicine in the um, San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, we had been social friends and and political friends, too, because we had we had uh, certain political philosophies that we shared. And we uh, anyway, we were friends. And uh, one day he approached me and he said, look, Ed, I, I need your help on something. He said, I'd like to help me write an article. I said, well, sure, John, if I can, what's it about? He said, well, I'm using a substance in the treatment of cancer. And he says it's working amazingly well, better than anything we've ever had. And he said, I've been so successful that I've attracted attention. People are coming to me from all around the world now to get treated. And he said that brought me to the attention of the medical authorities locally. And they're calling me a quack because I'm using something that is not approved by the AMA or approved by the FDA. And he said, anything is not approved, I can't use legally. And they want to take my license away. He said, but I'm saving lives. Now, what do I do? I said, I, I want you to write a, help me write an article to explain this dilemma. Maybe I can get some public opinion going there and get these people off my back so I can go back to practicing medicine. So I stepped into the trap. I say trap because I had no idea what I was getting into. Yeah. <laughs> it was a big topic. And so, yeah, I, and from that point forward in that three years or whatever it was that followed that of research, I met a lot of doctors who were using Laetrile or the, the chemical name is amygdalin in the treatment of cancer. Lots of mm-hmm. them and corresponded yeah. with some and and uh, heard about others. I would guess at that time in the United States, there were probably several hundred doctors who were using amygdalin very successfully in the treatment of cancer. And around the world, there are, there are thousands, many thousands. And I was in contact with some of the more prominent ones in that category as well. 
Right. Well, let me ask you this question. Um, and this might be a dumb question, but it's for the average listener that's um, wondering, why do you think it is that the American Cancer Society or the Breast Cancer Foundations haven't promoted these cures? <laughs> well, it's a good question. And I'm laughing because I, when you think about what we were just talking about a moment ago, that the the pharmaceutical industry would put itself out of business if it came up with a treatment for cancer that worked or any other illness. Think about the American Cancer Society. You know, if they raised money and, and that money produced a cure for cancer, that's the end of the American Cancer Society, isn't it? They don't no longer, you don't have cancer anymore. Have to go get another job. So there's a built-in negative bias there that that probably has never spoken, probably never thought too seriously about because it's uncomfortable to think about. But just imagine, here you are raising money and you've got you've got millions and millions of dollars and you you have a choice of giving it to somebody who is just going to plunge it away on the usual chemotherapy that makes people sick and maybe kills a lot of people doesn't really cure it and hopefully prolongs their life it in other words treats the disease instead of curing it and you you know that you as long as you do that you, you'll have the next year be, the need will be just as great and you go out and raise another hundred million dollars or you can give it to somebody like Dr. Ernst Krebs who has something found in nature that actually gets rid of the cancer who are you going to give it to? <laughs> you know you think hard about that especially if you if you ask your colleagues you know shouldn't we give some money to these alternative doctors and these researchers and the, their colleagues are going to say are you kidding man? Why will all of our government grants will dry up? Well they'll They'll call us quacks. They'll they'll fire us from our positions at the university. We'll be out in the street pushing a shopping cart. Mm. That's really what goes on. I, you know, I really I hate to think that the world is this corrupt. <laughs> to be yeah, honest with you. I know it's a hard it's a hard lesson. Yeah. Also in the book, you talked about cultures around the world that were free from cancer or had diets that prevented them from getting cancer. What cultures are those? Well, the ones I wrote about, in the, the one in particular that I wrote about I, in the book, I think was the most clear example. And that's Hunza. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hunza, Northwest Pakistan, that's near the Soviet, or the, what was the Soviet Union. It's a little hidden place up in the mountains there in the Himalayas. It's very inaccessible for a long time. In fact, the the story Shangri-La was really written about Hunza. It's very hard to get into. You risk your life back in those days to get in. You know, walking along at the edge of the cliffs with a sheer drop down into the ravine, you're inching along and the boulders are falling off. And then finally you get into Shangri-La, or in this case, Hunza. It's a real place. Mm-hmm. And uh, fortunately, there were several people that made it in there, a couple of research teams that went in the, in there and they interviewed the people and they met the Shah, or the ruler of Hunza, and they took pictures and they, you know, so the photographs came out. A couple of people wrote books on it and uh, I came across those books and got hold of the people and verified to my satisfaction that the stories were totally true. And the story is very simple, that these people in this remote area don't have cancer. And they live to be ripe old ages, 110, 120 is not unusual for the Hunza cuts in those days. They were completely isolated from the rest of the world. And, and the amazing thing is they lived a very simple life. They lived off the land. Mm-hmm. They had no such thing as money. They, they had, everything was barter. 
No fat. And, but they were exceedingly healthy people. And so these researchers inquired into that and they found out that what they ate was pure raw food, not raw, raw, but very little meat. They were vegetarians. They drank, they drank water that came down from the mountains loaded with minerals in the water. And as I mentioned, no money. So what did they use for money? They used apricot seeds as money. Mm. And they ate apricot seeds like a delicacy. Every day they would eat an apricot seed. Yeah. And yet, and those people didn't come down with cancer. There was unheard of. But the minute any of them got out of Hunza, they made it through that treacherous pass. And they'd go into the neighboring nations. They would drop dead of cancer and other diseases like everyone else. So there had to be something that was native to their environment. And so the long story is that we found out that those apricot seeds were rich sources of amygdalin. And some of the grasses that they were that they would harvest too were rich sources of amygdalin. The minute you um, get off the amygdalin, you come down with cancer. So that's there are many cultures like that. There was the Hunzikuts, there was the Navajo Indians and the North American continent, um, uh, the uh, Aboriginal Eskimos in Alaska. Mm. Interesting story there. The, those people never had cancer, and uh, when the military went up there and started building radar systems. They called it the Dew Line across the northern part of Alaska to detect incoming Russian missiles and that kind of thing. Well, they hired the native Eskimos to build their structures. They hired them for labor. And they brought them into, of course, to the um, to the mess halls and fed them the same food that they would feed to U.S. soldiers. And you know where I'm going with this. They started coming down with cancer. They didn't know what the heck it was. Wow. So they came down with cancer when they started eating the same foods that American soldiers eat. Mm. But before that, they didn't know what cancer was. And the inquiry was, well, where are they getting this amygdalin in Alaska? I mean, there's a lot of snow up there, isn't there? Right. And amygdalin comes from growing things, green things. Well, they found out. They, they liked the, the caribou, which one of their favorite uh, sources of food. And one of the delicacies for the Eskimos was to cut open the, the rumen of the caribou, which is like a, an upper stomach, a pre-digestion mm -hmm. organ that the caribou has and a lot of the grass-eating animals have. And they cut it open because there was always a lot of green grass in there that was pre-digested. It sounds ugly. I mean, but yeah. the Eskimos thought it was a delicacy. So they would the first thing they would eat when they killed the caribou was they'd pull out the green grass and they'd all eat the grass. And that, they analyzed it, and it was loaded with amygdalin. So in things, go, you could tell stories yeah. like this all wow. day long. Everything points always in the same direction. And that is that those people, those cultures where the native diet is rich in amygdalin, had mm -hmm. no cancer or very low instances of cancer. Modern societies like ours, where we've done everything possible to get rid of original sources of food. Now everything is processed, right. it's canned, it's cooked, it's baked, yep. it's added to, it's shaved, it's turned inside mm -hmm. out, you know. And, and the amygdalin is all gone because amygdalin is is uh, bitter to the taste. Mm -hmm. And so we select against foods that are bitter. And so now we have all the money and all the technology. We're dropping from cancer like flies. 
Wow, that's an amazing story. Um, yeah, I mean, you hear these stories about these primitive cultures and how they uh, live to be long ages and you wonder why. But when you look at our society, you know, we have a microwave culture, so it makes sense. Uh, moving on a little bit, you talked about American industrialists helping Nazi Germany and funding Hitler in some sense. Um, how does that tie into your book about cancer? That's a that's a good question because it, it's uh, it's di- well first of all it's difficult to answer because on the surface it seems that what the heck have the Nazis got to do with amygdala and the treatment of cancer and as a matter of fact when I first did my research for the book World Without Cancer and and divided it into two parts first part being the science of cancer and the second part being the politics of cancer I got and in the politics of cancer is where all the Nazis came into the picture I got a lot of pushback from people that said Ed what are you doing all that stuff for that's that's controversial no, nobody wants to read about that they want to know about cancer and how to, how to you know preserve their lives and extend their lives and get rid of cancer why are you bringing in all this this nutty stuff you know <laughs> it's right. controversial and uh, they almost talked me out of out of it they almost mm-hmm. convinced me that that was going to hurt me and that that would result in many people not learning the truth about the nutritional aspects of amygdala and that would cause people to die that needlessly would die because I was bullheaded enough to insist that they learn about the politics as well they almost got me on that uh, but I got to thinking you know the <laughs> The biggest problem in getting people to understand what I'm talking about is the question that comes to their mind, which is, well, if this is true, how come my doctor doesn't know about it? How come my doctor, who is the expert and has gone to the schools and the universities, how come he not only doesn't know about it, but he'll tell me it's quackery and he knows he says he knows about it. And if they don't understand the politics and the money side of this industry, they'll never understand the answers to why their doctor is on the wrong side of this issue. Mm. So I thought, well, no, it's not going to play out the way they said. People will never believe it if they don't understand what the motive is behind all of this. So that's why I went ahead and did So now, back to your question. Uh, what have the Nazis got to do with it? Well, it's not so much the Nazis, except that the, the origin of the pharmaceutical industry is what we're talking about, mm. happens to be Germany. And it happens to be Germany actually prior to the rise of the Nazi regime. It goes back to, um, well, I don't remember the dates now, but it goes back to the the dye industry. All chemistry started, I'm told, with the production of dyes. And from there, they got more complex, and then they got into into um, hydrocarbons, and they began in getting into burnable oils, gasoline, diesels, and then medications. And of course, they've always had chemistry involved in munitions and weapons of war. So it started off so simply as just creating dyes of color. But the, the chemical industry grew and grew because of the magic that can be done with chemistry. Mm-hmm. So that was the origin of the pharmaceutical industry also because it sprang out of that. Well, by the time the Nazis were rising to power, the the um, chemical industry had formed into probably the largest cartel even to date that the world has ever seen. It was called IG Farben. 
Mm-hmm. I, if I can remember that Germany, I think it's Interessengemeinschaftsverbindestry. I didn't pronounce it very well, yeah. but so that it just means it's a, it's a community of interest of the of the uh, Farben industry, and I think Farben might be mm-hmm. chemical industry. So in other words, translated, it, it's they're just saying it's a cartel, it's a chemical cartel. Mm. And it was huge. And they had, when I say huge, I mean it was not only in Germany. And they got all these companies together and they'd formed agreements with each other not to compete and to operate sort of in unison. And uh, they'd, they'd done that. They'd created cartel partners around the world, most heavily in the United States. There wasn't a single, I don't think, any major chemical company in, the, in America that wasn't involved in IG Farben. Uh, because of these cross contracts, they uh, in a cartel, the individual competing members enter into contracts with each other to eliminate or reduce competition between themselves. And that means they share patents and processes and they they divide up on territories. They fix prices. They do all these and they squeeze out the competition. All of that is what goes on in any cartel. So this all came to bloom in the Germany at the same time that Hitler was rising to power. So that's where the Nazis came into it. And not because it was about Nazism, but it just was about the rise of the of the chemical or the pharmaceutical cartel at a time and a place where Nazism was uh, the center uh, of all of that. So they got entwined almost accidentally. But when it came to the Nuremberg trials and uh, some of these criminals were taken in and, and cross-examined, naturally the question came up about what were you doing with medical experiments? Were you killing people? Were you doing uh, 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 unethical medical experimentation? Were you, uh, you know, were, what was going on with this IG Farben <laughs> business? And that's how it came came to pass. That's why it was in my book. I thought it was an important part of the history for people to understand that the origin of the pharmaceutical industry had some very dirty, dark secrets in it. And those, mm-hmm. those, those ethics were carried forward. I mean, it's just about achieve your objective, make your money, get your power, and let the chips fall where they may. If, mm-hmm. if people have to die, they have to die. So uh, without yeah. that understanding and without understanding how that cartel had uh, managed to to pay for the educational institutions and took over the the teaching facilities of all the great medical hospitals and how they how they affected the contouring of the curricula in the medical schools and it was all related to this cartel IG Farben in its American rendition of it if you don't understand that then you'll never understand why it is that your doctor doesn't know about these things wow what a racket <laughs> unbelievable just a few more questions before um, we wrap up uh, shifting topics a little bit what are your thoughts on the civil rights movement of the 60s and today? Do you see any parallels? Well, the parallels are perfect. Um, and the reason they're perfect is because there's really no difference except in intensity. The strategies and the tactics, the slogans, everything that we saw during what was called the civil rights movement of the 60s was taken from the communist playbooks. But by the playbooks, I mean their, their training manuals, their, uh, their schools. 
on how to take over a country, how to uh, how to dethrone the existing system, how to break it up, how to get people fighting against each other, to divide and conquer, to bring the semblance of revolution to a country. They, they, they're specialists in this. Uh, they did very well. As you remember, after they took over uh, Russia, they exported them their ideology using these same strategies and tactics all throughout Eastern Europe, and they were on their way to taking over the world by the time I came into the scene and got hold of some of their training manuals and also talked to some of the defectors that came out of the communist camp. So I got kind of a, a ringside seat as to how this was going on and why and who was behind it. And I understood that slogans were necessary to conceal the real objectives. They could never say this is a communist revolution for the takeover of America. They would have to call it something like civil rights or, you know, honesty and justice or something. I have to sound like it's uplifting mm -hmm. uh, so that they're on the right side. And uh, that's an important part of the strategy and how to defame your enemies by calling them nasty things like racists and anti-Semites and uh, killers and uh, call you, even call them communists <laughs> because they knew that people didn't like communists while they themselves were pretending not to be communists. So I, I has, was privy to all of that stuff and that's why I, I, I was involved in writing the, uh, the uh, documentary on civil rights. And um, so now back to the question, is there a parallel? Well, it's a perfect parallel because it's an extension of exactly this same thing. It's, it's, it's a, an issue of divide and conquer. And what the Marxist-Leninists have always said in their in their schools is that you must find in, in the country you want to take over, you must you must divide them. You must not have a unified people. You've got to get them fighting against each other. And you've got to find that element of society and wherever it is that is the most vulnerable to our propaganda. The most, uh, let's say, the ones with the least benefits, the ones at the lower class, the ones who have the most resentment uh, of those who are successful. And we, we've got to find differences of opinion and animosities, whether it be on traditions and cultures. Religion is always a, a powerful one that they look for. Race, of course, is, is a very powerful one. And underneath it all, it's the class struggle between the rich and the poor. It's always to find this against that, us against them. And that's the basic theme behind all of the communist strategy, the us against them. Yeah. And uh, so they decided back in the 20s, the 1920s, that in America, the weakest point in our structure, our society, was race, the division between black and white and other uh, other uh, races as well. But the, the black and white issue, they said, this is the one that provides the greatest opportunity for us to to create animosities, <laughs> you know, to get people mad at each other and hating each other. And uh, uh, I'll get it. animosities. All of a sudden you get a brain cramp. Yeah. And so. Uh, that's uh, they said back in the 1920s that that's they would use race. And so I produced the film on that. Well, today they're using race still, but now it's gone beyond that. The, the, the arguments, the slogans are much more heated. They're much more angry. And of course, the people undertaking the uh, the revolution, they will call it a revolution, are much more numerous now and they're much better funded. Um, back in the day in the 60s, the agents who were in the United States were funded by Russia, by the Soviet Union and their front groups. 
So it was money that came out of another country. And it probably, I don't know what the amounts were, of course, but it wasn't anywhere near the amount of money they're getting today from uh, George Soros and mm. from the deep state. Uh, because you see, they have to have, they have to fund both sides of a revolution. They've got to have, they have to pit people against each other. So they'll fund both sides. And mm. so we have in America, you got a group on the one side that the black uh, uh, agitators and the haters and the destroyers. And then you've got on the other side, supposedly, supposedly this artificial opposition, which would be the, the, the white nationalists, the white supremacists, the guys walking around with swastikas on their armband, mm. you know, and that's supposed mm. to be the other side and uh, all the good people in the middle of both colors are what's going on and this this, this doesn't represent me but they think they have to choose up between one of those sides that's the trick you know they they control both sides and then you have to choose one of their sides and that's where the wars start so uh, to answer your question again the strategy is the same the only thing is the intensity is much greater now and I Mm -hmm. think they're you know they're getting ready to go for broke this time yeah well you know some people might respond and say well Ed what about the what about blacks that were concerned about civil rights and they wanted to have equal protection under the law you know during the 60s um was that movement not genuine? Are you saying that there was an agenda? I'm saying that movement was not genuine, exactly. I'm saying that the motivation in people's minds was genuine. Anybody that thought, you know, more than a second or two would understand that the, there was validity in that goal. But that's not what it was about. That's the point. That's the facade. That was the banner they carried. But when you examined the people themselves and what their true motives were, they, had, they didn't care about that. All they wanted to do is to come to power. They wanted to bring down the existing system and come to power. And they were willing to use whatever slogan might have merit to it. And that one did. So it was not a genuine movement. It was a genuine uh, sentiment in the minds of most people. But that was not what the movement was about. The movement was about revolution. And do you think the leaders of that day, like Martin Luther King and others, were aware of this or were they being used? Uh, I think both is probably true. It's uh, hard for me to imagine that uh, Martin Luther King was not aware of the strategy that I'm talking about, because I I know that in his younger days, he had attended uh, some of the um, communist uh, training uh, schools. And the reason I know this is because I've seen photographs of him in those schools. Now, that doesn't mean he's a communist revolutionary, but I know he knows about it uh, because he was there. And uh, and you see some of the other comrades that were in the in that little group. It's like a little it looked like it was a hotel room almost, you know, as a small room. Mm -hmm. And but but yeah, that was I forgot what it was, a Southern Conference leadership or something like that leadership conference. And it was a communist front. Everybody knew that. So he had to know. It's hard for me not to, to believe that he didn't understand the strategies. Now, that doesn't mean that he wasn't sincere. And it doesn't mean that he wasn't used. I, I'm not saying that at all. But um, he did actually uh, promote the one side of this, uh, you know, the nonviolent side. And that was, uh, that was an important part of the, of the program is to, is to present one side, which was calling for legislation to present that as the acceptable, the moral side to be on. And I'm glad you brought it up because the thing I tried to, to make clear in that document, that old documentary that came out was revisited a few months ago, is that 
the, the classic communist revolution calls for two types of revolution. There's a violent and a nonviolent. Most people have heard only of the violent revolution. And of course, that's bad enough to bring a country down with violence. But in countries like ours, uh, advanced countries, where the people are used to uh, a legislative process, it's not an old dictatorship. It's not like a banana republic or something like that. People in America and in Europe, most European countries, are used to going to the ballot box and deciding things with their ballot rather than with guns and bayonets and bombs on the street. Mm -hmm. So in those cases, the comrades say, you use the violence in the street to scare the hell out of people. And then you have your other agents who are in government and in the media stepping forth and saying, okay, the only way we're going to avoid this terrible, terrible violence is by passing legislation to give Mm -hmm. them what they want or part of what they want. And then then you take a look at the legislation and it's the building of communism step by step, but legally using the legislative process. And that is the nonviolent phase of revolution. And that's the one they're using in America today. All of this violence and all the burning of the buildings and the hatred and the bashing of police cars and, and all of these things, that's primarily theater to scare everybody into accepting as reasonable this insane legislation that's going through Congress that is nothing more or less than the building of communism. Mm. You know, what's funny is that when you look at the civil rights um, era or the civil rights legislation and you look at today, I think they're trying to use it to uh, apply to transgendered uh, individuals. So well, they can apply then, to I, anything. Yeah, it's something right. that these poor people are, on, are downtrodden and they, they need their rights. And therefore, we need more legislation uh, which will uh, take away your freedom of choice in some way or increase your taxes. You know, right. they all, the two go together. Yeah. A solution for all the problems they come up with, no matter what it is, transgender, whether it's uh, poverty, whether it's race. Uh, well, I don't care what it is. They always have yeah. two solutions. You've got to have more government power and more taxes. Right. And it's not like, you know, transgendered people don't have rights as it is. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me ask you, how were blacks supposed to get equal rights? I wasn't alive during that time, but I've heard stories. But what avenue should blacks have taken for equal rights? I think the black people at that time were were taking the correct action. And so were the white people. And in other words, they were they were gradually uh, responding to enlightened self-interest in a free society. And I tell you, I I was born in Detroit, Michigan. Okay, I was born in 1931. You can figure out how old I am. Mm. And um, and we had a huge black community in Detroit at that time. And we got, as far as I know, we got we had a big race riot. But that just like our modern race riots, there weren't many actual people that participated in that. I think those most of those people even then were paid agitators and rioters. There a lot of dummies that got in the streets and looted because they don't have free TV set or something, but the ones that were throwing the bombs and, you know, fighting the police just like today. These guys are bussed to the riots in buses and they all come dressed in the same outfit. They're black and they got the boots on. They got a mat. They all look alike. They all they work together. You can see them giving signals to each other. This is not a grassroots movement. This is, does not represent the black people. These are trained soldiers. These are mm-hmm. these are like uh, like Marines. I mean, these guys are, are, are military specialists 
and that do not represent the American people of any color. Well, I saw that in Detroit, uh, and I can tell you that yeah, there were some bad things. There was some there was some violence a little bit, and and some some ugly things that happened between the races. But it was extremely rare. And most of us, I had a lot of black friends. I didn't think anything about it. We got along great. And yeah, sometimes it's a little awkward because uh, people would look at us like, you know, what are you doing? I, I don't. It's, right. it's but it was minor. I'm just telling you. And and as the years went by, it was less and less of that because people in a free society understand that in their own self-interest, this is not the way to be. And I think everybody was doing the correct thing. And that is just let human nature take care of itself and wash itself clean of all of this uh, uh, racial bigotry and so forth. It was on its way out. But now with all of this, we're going to force people to get rid of bigotry. And they're creating animosity now. They're creating it. Right. Which is what they want to do, uh, by the way. Right. Exactly. Um, Now, Cleon Skousen has written about this um, as far as who's funding communism behind the scenes. And I've read about um, billionaires funding communism like uh, George Soros or Rockefeller, um, Carnegie Foundation and others. Um, But why? And I've asked Alex Newman this, but why would billionaires be funding all this chaos? Like, what do they gain out of this? World control. Mm-hmm. That's it. They, they don't want. They don't want half of it or a third of it. They want all of it. Mm. So create the chaos so you can bring in the order. Okay. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. You have to destroy yeah, destroy things before you can. That's always been, by the way, that's always been one of the prime uh, strategies of these people going way, way back in history is to destroy so that you can rebuild out of the ashes as you wish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, they say no. Lenin said, "If you want to make an omelet, you have to crack a few eggs." Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, as far as Trump, um, I want to get your opinion on this. Um, throughout the past four years, we've seen a nonstop attack against him and his administration. And you know, I'm a person that likes to. Well, I have an independent mind about things, and I like to judge people on principle. Um, and I hear people say, "Well, you know, Trump." He's anti-globalist and he's against the establishment and he has the right enemies. Um, But then I look at, you know, some policies that he might support or some legislation. And sometimes I I question things. Um, In your opinion, is Trump anti-establishment or would you say that he's being used by the establishment to achieve their agenda? I wish you wouldn't had wish you hadn't asked me that question <laughs> because I have to I tell you the truth and that makes me somewhat unpopular because everybody wants to believe that Mr. Trump is our savior and there's some good reason for that by the way I'm not saying there isn't I mean he says the right things and he as you mentioned he has the right enemies Right. But I've been around this game so long that I understand that our enemy's strongest ploy over the years is controlled opposition. Mm. They know long before the opposition occurs that it will occur because they're laying the plan. Just as we've seen some of these recorded conferences regarding the coronavirus pandemic. 
There was this one that Event two hundred one. Pardon? Event two hundred one. Yes, event two hundred one. I mean, they, they predicted exactly the pushback that we're seeing today. People are, are going to be running short on masks. There will not be enough supply. The people are going to be fed up with the restrictions and there's going to be demonstrations and violence and so forth. They just talked about it. You know, they, they knew it was coming. And the reason they know it is because they have professionals that they hire to figure it out, just like in the military when they're trying to figure what what they need to do in the future, they work out all kinds of scenarios to see, well, this this could happen, this could happen, this could happen, and if this happens, then that will happen. So nothing, nothing takes them by surprise. And so they, I have to assume that they knew that at the stage of transition that we're in now, that there would be a lot of opposition to it. Mm-hmm. With that in mind, and I, I look back and I think of how the bankers played that card when they sold the Federal Reserve System to the American people and to Congress. Some of them pretended that they were against it, you know. Right. So it's I, I understand how this works. And I've, I've observed over the years a lot of congressmen, a lot of senators, they say the right thing. Oh, man, their speeches are wonderful and you cheer them. And they, they, even, they even sign on to a piece of legislation like I remember Congressman Ron Paul came up with a bill to edit the uh, Fed. And I was surprised he got 500, 600 co-signers on it. I said, why? These guys are co-signing it. And then a year later, when it came right down to putting it on the House, almost all of those guys took their signatures off. Now, people remembered, the voters remembered when they put their signatures on, they supported them. But very few of them knew that they ever took their signatures off. They just didn't know it. And time and time again, I've seen politicians, mostly politicians, say the right thing. Oh, man, they're good at that. But they never follow through when it really comes to a vote. They always at the last minute, oh, there was something came up and they cave in and the issue was lost by one or two votes because there were these guys that we knew they were on our side. But no, they at the last minute, they were talked out of it for some reason. I'm tired of watching that. I understand what's going on. These are people that are put there. They're controlled in some way. Maybe maybe they got... Uh, uh, Epstein photographs or something of them. Maybe they've got mm. money under the table. Maybe they've got threats to their family. I don't know what it is. But I do know that they have people who appear to be their opposition who are not. Mm. Now, ask me who they are, and I don't know for sure. Now, I take a look at Mr. Trump, and I think of his background with Epstein and all of that, and I, I hate to even think about some of those things, but he would seem to me like a very good candidate to be controlled in some way. I think about his previous career. He said in in the early days of the of the campaign, he said, you should vote for me because I'm a deal maker. I know how to make deals. I can work with anybody. I thought, hmm, is that good? Is that is that the yeah. kind of person I want that can work with the devil, work with anybody, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so I, I just tucked that away. I always was looking for some evidence of principle in his early years. I never found it. But then I remember about mid-campaign, I read in the paper that Mr. Trump spent a day 
with Henry Kissinger in Kissinger's New York place. The what the heck is Kissinger is the bag man for the Rockefellers. We all know that. Kissinger speaks for the Rockefellers. So in essence, why was candidate Trump spending a day with Rockefeller? Well, nobody ever said what happened there. They said they spent the day talking. And then I got to thinking, I get it. He said he was a deal maker. Mm. He made a deal. What was the deal? I don't know. I don't know. I just tucked that away. So that's in my mind. Now we come down to the career. He's going to clean the swamp. Well, the swamp is still there, ladies and gentlemen. He's surrounded by people. Most he appointed them. The right. swamp is still. He was one of his campaign slogans was, "We're going to arrest Hillary." Yeah, right. Well, she's not arrested. And now the, his latest word is, "Ah, we don't worry about Hillary anymore." I saw a video. In fact, I recorded it. It's on my computer now. During during the campaign. Somebody asked from the audience, well, what will you do about George Soros? And, you know, he's he's funding all of these violent left wing groups. And he's a he's a key figure. What are you going to do about George Soros? Mm-hmm. And his answer blew me off the chair. He said, oh, poor Mr. Soros. He's got enough trouble as it is. Leave him alone. Next question. Trump said that? Yes. Oh, yeah. I got it on video. He said that. That's his attitude. He, he, uh, he's a social um, uh, associate of, of George Soros. They go to parties yeah. together. Wow. Soros provided a lot of money that bailed him out in the Trump Towers. He probably would have lost the Trump Towers without Soros slash, you know, Rothschild money. Yeah, I think so, I have an article on that. I say, I, all of these things, they add up, and I think, golly, what is this? Now, Mr. Trump gives a great speech. I heard one just the other day. I think he was overseas someplace. He gave the best speech I've ever heard about how dire the present circumstances are and how these nasty globalists and these evil people uh, are tearing our country apart and how they have, have no care about the future and our, our children are going to live in slavery and and the economy is crashing and we've got to we've got to get people back to work and on and on he's reading a teleprompter of course mm-hmm. but it was the greatest speech i've ever heard but he doesn't do any of those things he just speaks about them yeah and then i saw something and it was well documented that before trump announced for his campaign there was an organization in Great Britain, that is a like a advertising agency, you might say, but for politicians, for political purposes, they they invent slogans and campaigns. And they're the ones that came up with all the slogans that Mr. Trump used, like make America great again was not his idea. It came from some organization in the UK paid for. By who? I don't know. Probably discoverable. And some other slogans. All of the things, you know, oh, the media, fake news. That was another one that was invented. Fake news and make America great again. And arrest Hillary. You see, these firms, they, they, they conduct polls. They find out what people respond to, what they will support, what they want to hear. And then they write the scripts and the speeches. Mm. 
And I, I know that this is true now. And so you ask me this question with all of this in my, my head. I think, God, I hope, I hope none of this means anything. Yeah. And I, I'm thinking, why does not just Mr. Trump, but all the governors and some of the mayors around the country, they let these violent crimes go into the street. They don't do anything about it. They stand down. They talk about how bad it is, but they, they don't do anything to stop it because they want people scared to death. So that finally, when Mr. Trump is challenging the election, if, if Biden goes in, there's no riots in the streets. Can you imagine the Trump supporters rioting and burning down buildings? No. But Trump gets elected and contests the election. My God, you've got all kinds of apparent reasons for all the violence in the world. It seems logical, right? And the violence leads to martial law and bingo, that's what we want. Bingo. Martial law is the end game. How else are you going to get it without dividing the people in the streets? And you've got to control both sides to make the fight look really, really good. Wow. Man, I, I had to ask you that because I consider you to be a person with a lot of wisdom. And, um, you know, I, I've, I've had a critical eye on these last four years. And, uh, you know, I see the, the fervor and the, uh, the loyalty that a lot of people have. Oh, yeah. Know. I love these people. Their hearts are in the right place. And God, right. I hope I am wrong. I hope they're right. I mean, nothing would please me more. But my God, I know too much about how this system works. I've mm -hmm. seen it. And that's not how it works. Right. So this wasn't a glitch in the system. <laughs> no, it was not a glitch in the system. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and like, like you said, I hope you are wrong because, you know, yeah. a lot of people would be so disappointed. I think we would reach the point where people would probably give up hope. But, you know, our hope shouldn't be in a politician anyway. Well, that's the that's the issue here. We, it shouldn't make any difference because right. the solution is not who's in the White House. And that's that's the underlying fallacy behind this. We think that the that the president should be king, that if we can just get the right man in the White House, well, then we don't have to do anything. We got the right. king in there for four years or eight years. And then we worry about it. After that, maybe we get a bad king then. No, we've got to rebuild this system from the ground up, from the local level up. We've got to get people who, who have no axe to grind, who really are true Americans and have these principles, not deal makers, but principle holders, upholders, you know, keepers of the flame. That's what we need. And they need to start at the local level, the county board of supervisors, the mayor of the city, uh, the board of education, the sheriff. This is how the system has to be built and rebuilt, not from the White House, for God's sake. Even, even if you had the greatest man in the world in the White House, he's only a bullet away. Yeah. It's true. I think we have to uh, transform the culture. You have to re recapture the culture. Yeah, it's it's right. it's in it's reeling right now. It's still there, but it's reeling. It's on the ropes. Right. Now, I asked you this question earlier, but I just wanted to go back to it. Um, we have men like George Soros, the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, but do we not have people that are equally as wealthy with principle that are willing to overturn the system and use their money for good? 
Does that not exist? I, I don't think anybody can come close to their wealth, but we I'm sure there are plenty of wealthy people, very wealthy people out there with lots of assets. Um, but they're probably as confused as everyone else. And uh, let's face it, uh, to have a lot of wealth today is almost a handicap because your wealth is, is how shall I say this, it's embedded in a cement of rules and regulations and technicalities so that you could lose it very quickly simply by some false claims made against you. So people with great wealth have great worry about losing a great amount. Whereas people like us, well, I don't know about you, but mm. I've got my home, of course, and I, I love my, my few little possessions. I love my library. I've got a few trinkets I like. Other than that, I don't really care too much. But still, I worry about losing my home, too. I don't want to be out in the street. But I think that very, very wealthy worry more about losing things because they have more to lose. Right. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Well, Mr. Griffin, I thank you for your time. Thank you for your insight. Um, where can well, listen- <laughs> I hope I wish you hadn't asked me that last question, but I would like to close on a positive note. Sure. And no matter whether I'm right or wrong or it's not even being right or wrong, whether or not my fears are right or wrong or founded on reality or not. Uh, we know that the solution is possible and we see that a tremendous number of people are waking up very rapidly right now more than ever before and that once we get to that tipping point which I feel that we're very close to then it makes no difference yes there's going to be some rough days ahead but on the other side it's got to turn out well because once you get to that tipping point in a culture or a civilization you cannot stop it I mean yes You can make it very, very ugly, but in the end, truth will prevail and freedom will be restored. Absolutely. Where can listeners find your resources and your books? Where can you find the resources, you say? Uh, your books and your your resources. Oh well, well, my books are available all over the internet, but I'd prefer you come to our site, of course, which is realityzone.com. We have about a okay. hundred different items there, not just my stuff, but a lot of uh, books and and the videos and uh, audio tapes. Really good material there. And that's realityzone.com. And then for the activities that are going on, I highly recommend you start at redpilluniversity.org and take a look at our our um, repository of information that really backs up most of the things I'm talking about here. So you see, there's more to it than just editorial opinion. There's a lot of facts there. And, uh, and, and we're building that all the time. And then the Red Pill Expo, of course, we have two of those a year. Our last one was on Jekyll Island. You mm-hmm. might find that. That interesting. It was our most successful event of all so far. And um, then those who want to really go down the rabbit hole and, and join us in the think tank, that would be at freedomforceinternational.org. And we have nothing to sell there, just ideas and strategies and uh, plans of how to bring back our sovereignty, our privacy and our liberty once again. Right. Absolutely. Again, thank you for your time, Mr. Griffin. This was great. Well, thank you for inviting me, and I hope I can come back sometime. Definitely. We'll continue this. God bless. Thank you. Thank you.